Okay, go ahead and open up, if you haven't already, to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Thank you to Rachel for sharing, don't know where you went, and um, just being vulnerable and open and um, just helping us see the ways that God glorifies himself through everything that happens in our lives. In 14 years of doing Women Equipping Women, I have never had so many people thank me ahead of time for a message I have not even given yet. (laughs) It's like the words, don't grow weary, just struck a chord, and people were like, thank you. (laughs) And it's no wonder, because I know full well this church is full of what my husband affectionately calls workhorse women, Not my favorite term, but he's right. It's full of women who just constantly work and labor and pour themselves out and cook and clean and host and plan and give and give and give. And you wouldn't have it any other way, right? But no matter how good the work is, even you can grow weary in it. And this passage is for those who might be growing a little bit weary in doing good. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So in the book of Galatians, we see a church that has been trying to seek salvation by their own efforts. Now, they had received and understood the gospel. They understood that Jesus had died for their sins and they had embraced that sacrifice, but now they were turning back to the law, to the Jewish law, to try to make themselves fully righteous, fully right with God. And as they were doing this, they were perverting the gospel. So it's kind of like if we said, in order to be right with God, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to vote this way, campaign for these people, and put this sign in your yard. Right? Paul's like, no. All those other things actually have nothing to do with your salvation. Being right with God happens only through faith in the blood of Christ. How you live does matter, just not in the way that you think. See, he wants them to understand we don't perform good works in order to be saved, but we are saved to perform good works. And that distinction is very important. Sometimes we can get weary doing those good works. But what he tells them over and over again in this book is that part of the good news of the gospel is the fact that at salvation, the Holy Spirit enters into our lives to make us holy and to power our ministry. And that's where this passage comes in. It is God who strengthens us to serve God. So when we're growing weary, it's to God we must turn. 
So in this passage, we're going to see four ways that we can turn to God. I think they're on the board. Yes. Yes. We need to respect your limits, resolve on a fruitful life, receive his strength, and remember the reward. So first, respect your limits. Now, for some of us, just reading these words, let us not grow weary, that is enough to make us already feel like a failure because we are weary, right? So every woman in here with small children is like, I sure hope that's not what it means because I'm always weary. Well, there are two words in this passage, variously translated, grow weary, and then later give up or lose heart. And basically what they mean is not don't feel tired. That's not what they mean. But it means don't be exhausted, don't faint, don't lose courage, don't give up, and don't behave badly. Okay, so growing weary is not about how you feel. It's about how you respond. It's about what you do. It's what happens when we stop doing the things we should and we stop doing good. But there's a reason why this word weary hits a nerve, right? We all know what weariness feels like, and we don't like that about ourselves. We don't like it because it's just so limiting to get tired so easily. It means we can't do all of those infinite things we wish we could do. Our weariness is deeply humbling because it's a constant daily reminder that we are limited creatures. We don't get weary because we've done something wrong. We get weary because we're not God. And sometimes the solution to our weariness is simply to rest. When the great theologian John Stott was asked, what's the secret of your Christian life? He did not answer spending five hours with God every morning or memorizing the entire New Testament or following this discipleship program. No. What he said was, knowing how much sleep I need and getting it. The need for rest is not part of our fallenness. It's part of our humanness. It's not, it's a feature. It's not a bug. God intentionally made our bodies to require rest from our labor on purpose. It's such an essential need that he actually designed all of creation to meet that need, to help us, to accommodate it. Think about it. For almost half of each day, he decided it would be best to turn out the light that's in the sky and make it so dark we can't work even if we want to. He did that so we would rest. And then he designed our bodies in such a way that we would respond to creation and get that rest that we need. So when it gets dark, our bodies respond by releasing, without us even thinking about it, the sleep hormone. Melatonin. Our bodies see dark and release melatonin, which causes our bodies to start getting ready for sleep. So they cause us to have a slower heart rate. It lowers our blood pressure. It lowers our body temperature. Our breathing starts to get slower. We get that pleasant, sleepy feeling, and we just start thinking about jammies and our pillow. 
Isn't that amazing that God syncs up what happens in our bodies with what's happening in the night sky so that we'll know this is enough, the day is done, go to sleep. God cares so much about this that he himself also set an example of how to rest. During creation week, right, he created for six days, and then on the seventh day, he did nothing but rest, not because he needed to, God wasn't tired, but because he knew we would need to. And so from the very first week, the day after he made Adam, the first example he gave him was how to rest. That is significant, Did you know that one of the big ten, one of the ten commandments that he first gave to Israel was a commandment to rest? Six days you shall labor and do, your all, do all your work, but the seventh day is a what? Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You shall rest. And he loved Israel so much that he actually told them, in addition to one out of seven, I want you to set aside other days to be holidays where you do no work, but you rest, you remember, you're refreshed. This is so important to us as people. God commanded it over and over and over. Now, we are not Israel, so this is not our law. We're not under this as a moral commandment. But if we ignore this pattern, we're just fools. Jesus needed to rest. Jesus regularly stopped what he was doing when it was night and went to sleep. He withdrew from all the people, from the good work he was doing, so he could rest, so he could be refreshed. There is nothing wrong with getting tired and needing to call it a day. It's just another reminder that we are not God. The problem comes when in our tiredness, We don't just seek rest, which is what we should be doing, but we begin to behave badly instead. We give up on doing good. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at our context to figure that out and see how that's linked to a fruitful life. So look at the beginning of our passage in verse 7. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So this whole passage here is basically one extended metaphor. Okay, the picture is of a farmer. You are the farmer. And in your life, there are two fields. And you are always working all the time in one of these two fields. Okay? On, over here, you have the field of the flesh, And then over here, you have the field of the spirit. And as you go through life, it's always, you're always in one or the other, okay? So the flesh in Galatians does not mean the body. So get that out of your mind. When I say flesh, don't think body. Don't think I'm doing something for my body. It has nothing to do with that. The flesh in Galatians talks about the old self, the the sin nature, okay? The part of you that dominated your life prior to Christ coming into your life. So the sin nature is the part of you that wants you still to go and do the things that just feel good, that are self-indulgent, that are selfish, that are not according to God's will. It's the part of you that craves pleasure and leisure and glory and pride. And so we sow to this 
flesh, right, this sin nature, anytime we give it what it wants, anytime we strengthen it instead of crucifying it. So we sow to the flesh with our thoughts. So when we start rehearsing old, bitter thoughts, we're sowing to the flesh. Or when we repeat in our mind a juicy morsel about someone, we are sowing to the flesh. When we despair about the future, we're sowing to the flesh. When we think things that aren't true, we're sowing to the flesh. When we long for something someone else has that God has not seen fit to give us, we're sowing to the flesh. When we call to mind a dirty image that we've seen before, we're sowing to the flesh. All of these thoughts are sowing to the flesh, planting in this field. And we can sow to the flesh with our actions. So when we're watching the sketchy shows, right? When we're hanging out with people who tempt us to sin, when we're drinking too much, when we post on, online, on social media, something designed to make somebody say, oh, she is so beautiful, smart, lucky, blessed, whatever, we're sowing to the flesh. In some of our lives, this field over here is full of seeds. We've spent a lot of time there. And though we can't see it, they are always growing, growing, growing. Meanwhile, this other field, the field of the Spirit, is sown very differently. If sowing to the flesh means giving your old man control and doing whatever it is that your flesh wants, that your sin nature craves, sowing to the Spirit is when we allow the Spirit to have control, to tell us what to do and how to think. So we sow to the Spirit, once again, in our thoughts and our actions. In our thoughts, when we pray about our anxieties instead of stewing on them, right? We sow to the Spirit when we think on what's pure. That includes sex with your own husband. We're sowing to the Spirit when you memorize Scripture, when we think about the Lord, when we set our minds on heavenly things, when we bury that dainty morsel of gossip instead of thinking about it or speaking of it. And we sow to the Spirit with our actions. So every time we get up before the kids to read our Bibles, every time we sacrificially give to somebody to help others or to the church, every time we, we sit and we listen to a hurting child pour out her woes, every time we speak respectfully to our husbands, every time we labor faithfully at a job that we don't enjoy, We're sowing to the Spirit. And in some of our lives, this field is full of seeds. And though you can't always see it, they're silently growing, growing, growing. Now, none of these seem like big heroic actions, right? Seeds are small. But what God is telling us here is that seeds grow. Little things matter. Little choices become big consequences. There will be consequences for what we do in all of these tiny little areas. Those who sow to the flesh, Paul says, will reap corruption. And those who sow to the spirit will reap eternal life. Now you may think of that, you may hear that and just say, wait a second, that actually kind of sounds like works righteousness. Like if you do enough of these good things, you'll get into heaven, right? You'll get eternal life. 
Well, no. That's not actually what it means, because if it did, we would all be going to hell, because none of us has an empty field of the flesh, right? If we could earn our way to heaven, it would have to be with not a good record, but a perfect record, and none of us has that. We cannot do enough good deeds in this field to get into heaven. Paul's just taken the whole book of Galatians to tell us there's no amount of good works that can save us. Only the blood of Christ can set us free from the curse of sin and death. But what he is saying is this. If we truly trust in Christ to be our Savior and our Lord, our lives will show it. There will be fruit. So to see what that fruit looks like, what it is that's growing under the surface, we have to take a step back even further and look at the bigger context of this passage. So we're going to go up to towards the end of chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Those little seeds that are sown to the flesh turn into the works of the flesh. Okay, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's a pretty clear picture of a corrupt life. If you're a Christian and you're sowing in this field over here, that's actually what you're pursuing. You're actually pursuing the life of a hypocrite. And that's what you'll become. Your character will be bad. You will have lots of broken relationships and regrets. You'll lack integrity. Your kids will see right through you. You'll feel like a faker at church. You'll struggle to take communion. You'll make the gospel look unattractive to the to people in your life who desperately need it. Verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The greatest danger of playing around in this field over here is that those who stay there show that they are not God's children. And the ultimate reaping will happen when they're shut out of heaven. Do not be deceived, my sisters. God is not mocked. This is not an empty threat. This field is a dangerous one to play in. Sin is not just evil, it's dangerous. Little things matter. When we think that we can pray a prayer and call ourselves Christians and then spend our lives doing whatever we want living for ourselves, doing whatever feels good and makes us happy, sinning and assuming God doesn't really care and it doesn't really matter because Jesus already saved me. We are deceiving ourselves and mocking God. This other field, the one where we've sown to the Spirit, it brings forth, obviously, a very different kind of fruit. Let's keep reading in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, when we sow in this field, right, when we're loving our enemies and we're praying and we're reading God's word and we're living obedient, faithful lives, when we're turning down that second drink, when we're saying no to flirting with someone else's man, that act of obedience is not just pleasing to God, 
though that it is. But it's also a tool he turns around and uses to change us. He's forming Christ in us by using our obedience to change our hearts and our affections. As we choose obedience over and over and over, it becomes the default setting of our hearts. It becomes the only thing we want to do. It becomes our natural inclination. We become like Christ. Do you want that to describe you? For your character to be full of peace and patience and kindness and love and joy? For your kids to grow up and say, my mom was the real deal and bless you? For unbelievers around you to think, well, I may not like what she believes, but it sure has made her a loving person. I know I do. And if you're truly a Christian, there will be this kind of harvest in your life in some measure. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The life of a Christian is a life of obedience and repentance. There is no other way to be a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian, but what he's saying is, this is what it actually means to be one. Have you ever met someone who's just deeply godly? Like you just have a conversation with this, this person and, and she just smells like Jesus. She didn't get there by chance. And that's not her natural personality. She got there by quietly, patiently, often secretly sowing to the spirit in her life. What she's done with her time and money and energy and talent the ways that she's said no to sin and yes to Jesus, the many times she's refused to complain about the hard things in her life, the times that her flesh had said serve yourself and she has chosen to serve another, all of those things, the wrestling for holiness that no one else has seen, that's what the Spirit has used to make her smell like Jesus. No farmer plants wheat seeds and then expects to harvest corn. Every farmer knows, whatever I sow, that's what I'm going to reap. So what we need to do is we need to be like that farmer. And we need to ask, start by asking, what kind of harvest do I want to eventually reap? Not what do I want to do right now, but what kind of harvest do I want to eventually reap? And after we've answered that question, if the Lord grants that I live to 50 or 60 or 70, what kind of person do I want to be? What do I want to smell like? What do I want my children to think of me, my grandchildren to think of me? How do I want to be trusting the Lord? What sins, what sin patterns do I want to just be gone out of my life? What kind of good works do I want to be known for? After we answer those questions, then we say, if that's what I want to reap at harvest time, then which seeds should I sow today? Now. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. Think about the harvest and then resolve to live a fruitful life. And here's what the resolution looks like in verse 10. So then, 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So what does this mean as we have opportunity? Well, that basically means as long as you're alive in this world and there are people, let's do good to everyone. Christian fruit is loving our enemies. It's praying for those who persecute us. It's seeking the good of our city. It's being salt and light in our schools. It's being like the Good Samaritan and generously, lavishly doing good to anyone with a need in our path. Because all people everywhere are made in the image of God and they're unspeakably precious to him. But Paul is unapologetic about the fact that there's a priority. Other believers are your priority. Do good to all and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We love all people because they're made by God. We love Christians particularly because they're bought by Jesus Christ. They're our brothers and sisters. They're our family. We have to take care of each other. We tell our kids all the time, your brother or your sister is your responsibility. And that's what he's saying here. Do good to everyone, but especially your brother and sister. That means that for the believer, serving in church is actually more important than participating in 4-H. Serving in church is more important than coaching volleyball. Serving in church is more important than helping at a community bake sale. That doesn't mean those other things aren't good. They can all be good. Do good to everyone. But when you have to choose, Paul is telling us the church is your priority. Our good works are the way that God cares for the people that he made and the people that he redeemed. He uses your hands to take care of his people. If you've ever wondered, and we all have, why once I'm saved, once my eternal home is in heaven and that's secure, why didn't God just take me home right away to be there? This is why. As you have opportunity, as long as you are taking in air on this planet, this is your opportunity to do good to all and especially to the household of faith. That's why you're here. He puts it differently in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God made you, and then he redeemed you with like this special list of good works that he has laid out for you for the rest of your life. That includes whatever you've done for anyone this week. It includes maybe you picked someone up and brought them here tonight. Maybe you helped prepare this meal. Maybe you helped set something up. Maybe you've taken care of children in the nursery. It includes that. If you've done that, it's on your list. And it includes everything you're going to do for the rest of your life to love his people. He has a list of good works for you to fulfill while you're here. I refer to that as my post. And one of my goals in life is no matter what happens, I want to stay at my post. I want to fulfill the list of good works that he has for me as long as he gives me breath. So we want to resolve to live a life that's filled with the right kind of fruit. We want to have this field over here become more and more fruitful. We want it teeming with good works, right? And we want this field over here to be barren, as empty as possible. 
right? We don't want to be sowing there when we realize we have been. We want to try to pluck out those seeds, right, through repentance. We want to be forgiven, and we want to try to get rid of that, those things from our life. That's what it means to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So if that's the kind of fruit that we want and don't want, then what kinds of seeds should we be sowing right now? Well, tonight, when you go home, should you pull up Netflix? Or is there maybe something better you can do with your time? Point three, receive his strength. Now, if we're going to live like this, we're going to need a source of strength that's bigger than us. Because we are weak, and we are frail, and we are fickle people. And there are some very good reasons why we may become weary and want to give up and not stay at our post. So let's just look at a few of those reasons. These are not Bible reasons. These are Becky reasons. Sometimes we grow weary because there's sin in our life that we won't turn from. So after King David committed adultery and then he committed murder to cover up his adultery, he was a miserable man. He describes it this way. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. What a great description of a man in his sin. God would not let him be happy in his sin. And he won't let you be happy in your sin either if you are his. Out of his kindness, he will sap you of strength and joy and vitality until you repent. So it could be that you're weary because you are living in sin. It could be that we grow weary because we're not resting enough. We've talked about how God made us to need rest, but some of us aren't getting it. Maybe we're abusing caffeine to avoid rest. Maybe we're staying up too late and looking at our phones or watching TV when we should be sleeping. Maybe we're packing our schedules too full. And let's be honest, most of the things that fill our time are not necessarily things we have to do. A lot of it is things we want to do. We're overfilling our schedules with stuff we want to do. The problem is when we don't get enough rest, we show signs of weariness, right? We start getting sick more often. We start getting irritable and crabby. We snap at people. Our minds don't work as well. We have no more good ideas. We're mean. It's interesting that when Elijah, after he had his epic showdown with the worshipers of Baal up on Mount Carmel, after that, he had like a total crash and burn burnout moment. Like, just like, God, why am I alive? There's nobody left who worships you except me. I'm the only one. Why don't you just kill me? I mean, like, low, okay? And what's really interesting is when God hears him say that, God does not give him a lecture. He actually doesn't say anything to him. What he does is he gives him food and a really long nap, and only after that, after he's rested and back in his right mind, does the Lord deal with his soul. Sometimes we're weary because we just need to rest. 
Sometimes we're weary because, number three, we're not abiding in Christ. John 15 says a branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. We can't give what we don't have. We have no strength to serve when we're not drawing it from Christ. There's no other place to get it. When we're not listening to his word, when we're not talking to him, when we're not sitting at his feet, when we're not living the life of a disciple, then our labor of love just becomes labor. And we grow weary real quick. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we don't go to him, we're just weary and heavy laden. We become weary, number four, when we cut ourselves off from the body. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. When you're not involved in the body, and I don't just mean coming on Sundays, although that is great and good and important. But when you're not relationally involved with other Christians, there's no one helping you to bear your burdens. No wonder you're weary. We can grow weary because we don't see results. Now, a farmer knows exactly when he expects to see a harvest, right? It's always the same time every year. It's either going to be a good one or a bad one, but he knows when it's coming. And one of the frustrating things about bringing a Christian and this kind of a harvest is we have no idea when it's coming, right? We're not in charge of that. Sometimes we feel like we're working without seeing any results. So the issue we've been praying for isn't getting resolved. My kids' behavior is not improving. The girl I meet with just keeps sinning in the same way over and over and over. And it's true. A lot of times our labor is blind. We don't see the results. We don't know what the Lord is doing. But Isaiah 55.10 says, My word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God is the one who brings results in God's time. When we don't see it and when we forget this, we grow weary. Six, you may be weary because your field is actually harder than most. Every farmer knows that some ground is harder to farm than others, right? It's rocky or it's depleted or I don't know, other like farming words. It's hard. And some of our lives are like that. Some of us have a hostile workplace. Some of us might be married to an unbeliever. Um, maybe you go to school and the kids there do not want to hear your bigoted gospel. Your professors are mocking you. All of those things, those are, those, that's, that's rocky soil. That's recipe for weariness. Finally, you might grow weary because it's just a really hard season in your life. Right? Farmers also know that some years are harder than others. Some years there's bad weather, there's not enough rain, there's blight, there's mildew. Some of you are in a season that feels like that. Your marriage is going through a a really difficult time. One of your kids is struggling. You've suffered a loss recently, or you're sick, or your hormones are changing, or you're in the later years of life and everything's just hard, or you're just plain depressed. You feel far from God. We all wish that we could always live 
with the warmth of the sun on our backs. We all wish that we didn't have to have those cloudy days. And when they come, we wonder why they're here and why it's suddenly gray and why we don't feel the smile of God upon us. But here's the thing. Without clouds, there's no rain. And without rain, there's no fruit. We can live with the sun always upon us. That's called a desert. And you know what deserts don't have? Fruit. Nothing grows. It's cactus. Even when the sun is hiding behind the clouds, that doesn't mean it's gone away. It's there. It's doing its work. It's actually doing sometimes more important work where it is. And when you can't sense the pleasure of God upon you, when he seems distant and remote and hard to understand, that does not mean he's not there. It doesn't mean he's not working. He's allowing these cloudy days because it's what he's using to bring forth a fruit, a harvest of righteousness in your life. And it's going to be good. You could probably come up with a dozen more reasons why you're growing weary and why sometimes you feel like you should give up and pull back and just put aside God's interest for a while. But God, for every one of your dozen, has a thousand reasons for you to keep going. But to do so, you're going to need strength from outside yourself. So one of the great buzzwords of this generation is self-care. Now, what self-care used to mean is things like giving yourself your own insulin shot or sleeping eight hours a night, or drinking enough water, right? Good things, necessary things. One should care for oneself in these ways. What it now means, though, it has ballooned and exploded to cover everything from yoga to bath bubbles to meditation to therapy to mommy drinks in the afternoon, Botox, is part of self-care, cozy slippers. And all of these things are necessary for our mental and emotional health. Now, the thing about that is that the world is teaching us to see ourselves as very fragile people, that we're always just hovering on the brink of an emotional meltdown. Like, if you don't do these things for yourself right now, and preferably using our products, then you, you might suffer a mental break. Ordinary tiredness is now a sign of danger. Ordinary busyness is now seen as a threat to our mental health. Your children can be a problem because they infringe upon your self-care routine. Your husband is a problem. You need boundaries from your husband because he puts so much pressure on you. Only you can strengthen you. This is a profoundly unchristian idea. If I'm really that limited and that fragile, how can I strengthen myself? I can't. The only thing I can do is maybe conserve what little I have. But the Christian has a source of strength that the world knows nothing about. Right? Isaiah 40, one of the best. Isaiah 40, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired... His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. 
Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow tired. They will walk and not become weary. What we see in this passage is that when we wait on the Lord, what this means is he actually gives us his strength. When we run down, he actually swaps out our strength and gives us his. That means that as Christians, we have a totally different approach to strength, right? So the world says, conserve what little strength you have. But the word says, pour yourself out as a drink offering. Let God strengthen you. The world says, take care of yourself first before you take care of others. The word says, in humility, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The world says, take a break from reality. Dive into a book. Binge on Netflix. Take a drink. The word says, set your mind on things above. The world says, fulfill yourself. Work to live. Don't live to work. Don't miss out. Play, play, play. The word says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Fulfill God's will, not yours. The world says you are the most hashtag blessed when you're lying on a beach and someone's bringing you a margarita. The word says it's more blessed to give than receive. It's more blessed to serve than to be served. The world says you need to love yourself first. The word says the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And the second is to love your neighbor. The world gives us a recipe for always feeling weary, for always thinking we're at the end of our rope, for always thinking that the solution is to give up, pull back, do less for someone else and more for ourselves. But what the world is telling us is basically this field over here, the field of the flesh, anytime you're tired, go play there. It's fine. Do not be deceived. Self-love is a recipe for a lonely life. But when we sow to the Spirit, you never labor alone. The Holy Spirit works in you, through you, with you. He compels you towards the good works he has for you. He empowers you to do them. And then he takes those works and he multiplies them beyond all proportion. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, when you said, did, whatever, this thing, it made such a difference in my life. And you're thinking... What thing? And they're like going on about like how the Lord used this in their life and how, you know, they've changed these things or it just gave them new strength or whatever. And you're like, oh, how do I say I don't even remember that? We do a little thing and offer it to God and he takes it and turns it into whatever it was that he wanted. He brings the fruit. He causes the growth. We never labor alone when we labor for the Lord. Does serving make us tired? Yeah, yeah, it does. But is it such a bad thing to be tired? Really? Like, if you're a new mom and you have a newborn baby and that little guy, he's going to be up around the clock. He's always eating, crying, pooping. There's no one to meet his needs except you. You're exhausted. Is that a sign that something's wrong? That you haven't put up appropriate boundaries? That you need to do a little more self-care? No, that means you're normal and you're doing exactly what you should be doing. And it's those years of bleary-eyed service that you barely remember 
that the Lord uses to transform selfish young girls into heroic, self-sacrificing women who will labor that way for everyone for the rest of their lives. That's how he makes lifelong laborers in the body of Christ. Look, we're all going to get tired from something. Whether you've spent the day making dinner for a sick family or whether you've spent that same day shopping at the mall, either way, at the end of the day, you're going to be tired. It's not wrong and it's not bad to be tired. Get the rest you need and then ask him for strength to get up and do the same thing all over again. Finally, remember the reward. We all work to to earn a reward. Nobody plants a garden because they just like to be dirty. You plant a garden so that you can see the flowers or eat the fruit. If there were no fruit, you wouldn't plant. Even Jesus worked and lived for a reward. He wanted to fulfill the will of the Father, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Would he have gone to the cross if it were not for the fact that he knew in doing so, he was going to redeem God's children? It was the joy set before him that made it worth it. And we're the same way. When we face something that we know is going to be hard, we ask the question, is it worth it? Two weeks ago, Dave and I were staying. We were in Maui, staying at a friend's condo that he let us have. And while we were there, we decided to do the number one hike on Maui. And by half a mile in, we knew exactly why this was the number one hike on Maui. This place was like... It was like God had taken all of the brightest and most vibrant colors on his palette and used all of them right there. I mean, it was, so, it, was like, it was like being in Jurassic Park minus the Jurassic. And it was like, <laughs> like the spiders along the path were so pretty. I was taking pictures of them and texting them home to my boys. And I don't even like spiders. It was so beautiful. It was like mesmerizingly gorgeous. So the thing is, though, what all the reviews had not necessarily emphasized was the fact that this was a very strenuous hike. I mean, it's like two miles straight uphill, like muddy switchbacks, scrambling over rocks, I mean, hard, and then two miles straight back down. I was still recovering from my September encounter with COVID. So my lungs are like, right? So by like a mile, a mile and a half in, I'm like, okay, this is amazing. Maybe it's enough amazing. So Dave and I are like, you know, he's he's so, so supportive. He's like, anything you want, sweetie. If we need to turn around, we'll turn around. This has been great. It's been a wonderful day. So I'm like, I'm pretty much at that point. And then this couple comes down, they're like smiling and happy, and we're like, okay, when you got to the top, was it worth it? And they're like, is it? They're like, this is all pretty, but oh, when you get up there, you can see the whole island. And, it, blah, 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 blah. and they're just going on and on, and we're like, all right, that's all I needed to hear, right? I just needed someone to tell me it was worth it. So I was just about to be like, okay, we're doing it. And then I saw a little four-year-old kid skipping back down the mountain, and I'm like, okay, he did this? I'm definitely making it to the top. But that's kind of like what Paul is doing here. He's telling us, this is going to be worth it. 
In due season, we will reap if we don't give up. There will be fruit, there will be reward, and it will be worth it. And that is a promise you can take to the bank. Now, the world promises us a lot of things too, but in the end, its rewards are empty. According to the world, what makes people happiest? Having the most, being the most beautiful, being powerful, being well-known, rich, famous. But if that's the case, then shouldn't celebrities be the happiest people on earth? If you live for beauty, you'll always feel ugly. If you live for money, you'll always feel poor. If you live for stuff, you'll always feel like there's not enough. If you live for power, you'll always feel vulnerable. If you live for pleasure, you'll always feel like you're missing out. If you live for competition, you'll always feel like you're losing. But if you live for God, you will get him. That's the greatest promise of the whole Bible, that God himself is our inheritance. I would venture to say that the most blessed people, the most content, are the ones who are closest to God. And it doesn't matter what their circumstances are. Sometimes they're the people who have gone through dramatic suffering and hardship. Sometimes they're just the ones who have lived an ordinary, long obedience in the same direction. I think often the most blessed people on earth are the ones living relatively boring lives of quiet faithfulness to God. In addition to being close to God, we know that we'll reap a harvest from our good works. That's a promise from God. What we're doing will pay off. And that means that your prayers for your children are being heard. It means your caregiving for that parent, that love and sacrifice makes you beautiful in God's sight. It means the hours you're putting in at church are building the kingdom. It means your good witness at school is glorifying God. It means your little acts of repentance are cultivating a godly character. It means your gifts are storing up a treasure in heaven. And in all of this, you're experiencing the life of God in the soul of man. There's no greater thing here on earth. Ultimately, we live for the final reward, which is our eternal life in heaven with God, with all the saints, with Jesus Christ forever. I guarantee there's not a saint in heaven who thinks, I wish I had just taken it easy on that whole doing good works thing. I wish I hadn't run so hard after holiness. No. No, no one would say that. The faithful Christian life is always worth it in the end. 10 out of 10 recommend. So, my faithful sisters, this is not always an easy life but persevere in it with me by God's strength. And I'll persevere in it with you. Let's not grow weary in doing good. And the Lord will give us strength and fruit and the joy that comes from a life well lived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor and praise for being the God who created the universe the God who cannot be contained by heaven in the highest of heaven, but who lives in our hearts. The God who holds the world in place on its axis and cares that a baby hasn't slept through the night. Lord, you are at once so high and so beyond us and yet so with us in the trenches. 
God, we cannot even fathom these things, but we can give you glory for them. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us, Lord, to resolve that we want to live lives of fruitful, faithful worship and service to you. Father, be glorified and be honored in us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.